Well, good morning, Community Heights. It's good to see you this morning. We are in the book of, um, the book of, uh, and I just can't remember which book we're in. It's one of the New Testament books. Um, the people who put the stage design together, uh, I'm thankful. I know one is Sandra and one is Alyssa, and there might be some others. But I think maybe they're glad we're not in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because <laughs> they made this thing by hand. They, they made it. I thought they bought it somewhere. And then I found out that they fashioned and designed it themselves. So uh, we are in the book of Luke chapter 4. Last week, Jason had us in the wilderness where Jesus was being tempted by the devil. And uh, now we're going to see that in this passage today, he is going north out of the wilderness, north to Galilee, to begin his, uh, his ministry as a young 30-something, right? He was, he was the original millennial, Jesus was, 2,000 years ago. And uh, he's going to start his ministry uh, in the town of Nazareth, and we're going to see that. But uh, the name of this morning's message, I'm just calling it the Jesus Manifesto, because the, a manifesto is a public declaration of policy or, or the aim for whoever is publicly declaring something. And Jesus today, and Luke in particular, as he's done his research and as he puts this orderly account together for this guy named Theophilus, he decides that right toward the beginning, he is going to put in this account, this story of Jesus going to his hometown to publicly declare his policy and the aim of his, what will eventually be his kingdom. Julie is a friend of my wife and mine, and Julie, in a number of years ago, right after the earthquake in Haiti, went with a group to Haiti. And while she was there, she saw the destruction and the devastation. This morning, we've talked a little bit about Molly. We, uh, um, my wife and I got to see our friend Jen Vogel. She was the lady on the left of those two women that were there and the one was speaking. She was in our church, she is in the church in Orange City and was uh, my director of children's ministries for about 10 years. Wonderful lady and she's talking about, um, it, she's talking about the women's project and then they described, that young couple described it afterwards, the, the human trafficking and the sex trafficking that people are caught up in. And uh, Julie, when she went to Haiti, she saw this stuff going on. People who would do anything to feed their family. That's what's going on in Haiti. Six, seven years ago, it was really going on, really bad. So she saw the poverty, the hopelessness. I remember her telling me she looked in their eyes. And at the time she was there, there were more NGOs, more non-governmental agencies, organizations there, um, giving out stuff, feeding the poor, uh, handing out essential uh, materials. There were more on the ground there than per capita than anywhere else in the world. And she looked in the eyes of these people. And as they stood there and just received and were given stuff, there was like, there was an emptiness. There was an emptiness. They didn't have a job. They didn't have stuff. They had to stand there and they had to take from others. So she left, but she couldn't shake her memories of the people. And as she went home, I, 
Uh, I had a conversation with her. We're, we're going to play it, and I asked her this question, and then you could hear her answer. What you said earlier was you said that that wasn't okay about a number of things that you saw. Right. And it made me think of the term that people use, I, I can't unsee that. Right. So just talk just a little bit more and maybe tell us a story or take us back to, but take us back to that first visit and you're leaving in that, that next six months. What were some of the things that you struggled with on the inside because it was changing who you were? Oh, wow. I, I really went through some personal upheaval. The Lord really, really worked on my heart and on my life and after being in that country and seeing faces and knowing names and meeting people one-on-one and knowing how dearly God loves those people and thinking of them and I guess I guess the biggest thing to me was God kept telling me that these were his children and kept bringing back to my mind how much I love my family and how much he loves his family. And then I kept coming back to the lifestyle that I live, the things that I have and I take for granted, the beautiful house I live in, the tap water that I could turn on and drink, the number of towels that are in my cupboard. The fact that not only am I not hungry, but sometimes I have to choose to be a little less hungry because I eat too much. (laughs) The number of clothes in my closet. Uh, Sometimes just the fact that there were just so many things that were difficult for me to come to terms with that had been a huge priority in my life up to this point in time that God was pointing out to me I needed to shift my thinking processes and that my priorities really needed to shift. And I needed to start thinking in a whole different way about what is most important in life. Not necessarily that having things are wrong, but the priorities that I had built up in my life and in my mind really had to shift. So there were things that I really struggled with. And I have to say, my family could tell I was going through some struggles. And they may have been concerned about me at a few times. When um, there, were, there were some times I just had to go on long, long walks and I just had to cry. Um, I, I really was broken. It, it was difficult. So it was her compassion and concern for these people that just welled up inside of her and that eventually forced her into action. And she did something about it. And in today's passage, Jesus reveals how his kingdom is going to be full of the poor, the kinds of people that were probably best best representative of the poor were the people that she saw then. But when Jesus says, as recorded by Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He didn't just mean the poor, physically poor, economically poor, but he meant the poor, period. Those who knew their place before God, 
uh, those who saw God for who he was, knew who they were, and realized that in comparison, there's a paucity, there's a poorness that we all have when we're compared to God. So all of us, but then, but then the poor in every culture, those who are the outcasts, the, 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 the social pariahs, um, outside of the, of the coterie of the in crowd, the poor. Um, and in today's passage, it, we're looking from verses 14 through 30. And there's one line in the middle of it that the whole passage hinges on. It is the focus, I believe it's the focus of the entire passage. And, and it's kind of in the middle. And we're going to see it in just a second. So in verse 14 and 15, it says that Jesus returned to Galilee after his temptation in the wilderness. Look what it says, in the power of the Spirit. So we saw in his baptism that the Spirit descended like a dove in bodily form and was upon him. It says that, that said that in the power of the Spirit, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And now he is going to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So here's an interesting aside. He didn't use what were the Son of God's powers. He, as the man, Jesus, walked in the power of the Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 2, after he ascended, who came to be with us? The Holy Spirit. So see, we're a lot like Jesus. We're people, like he was a people. A man with the Spirit, walking in the power of the Spirit. It's not inaccessible to us at all. We're in the same boat. He put himself in the same boat that we're in. So news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. It was good. He was, he was um, illuminating the Scriptures to them, to them and they were, they were loving it. So in verse 16, he went to Nazareth. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Nazareth, right? Nazareth, Newton. He went to Nazareth. That, can any good thing come from Nazareth? But he went to Naz- Nazareth where he had been brought up. This was his hometown. Where were you brought up? Got that hometown in your head? Right? It's probably not any place special. In fact, it's probably not that great of a place, but it's where you were born and raised, so it's special. It's great in your mind because that's where you grew up. He went back to Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's the phrase. That's the hinge right there. That's the hinge. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if we were to take that little passage on the screen and we were to look at it grammatically, how it comes in its original language, uh, even going back into the Old Testament where it's pulled out of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me. So Jesus is emphasizing that he 
is the one of whom the prophet is speaking. He is saying to them as he's reading this to them that me, right here, I'm the one who is to proclaim good news to the poor. It's me. So um, the statement of primary mission there is to preach good news to the poor. And secondarily under that, this threefold, to proclaim for the captives release and to the blind sight, to send forth the oppressed in release, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this word release comes a couple times. And in other places, it's translated forgiveness, the release from sins, the forgiveness. You are released from this obligation. You are released from this debt. The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament came around every 50 years. So they would do their their six years and their one-year Sabbath with their crops, their six years and their one-year Sabbath, where they didn't plant. And they expected enough on the sixth year to carry them through the seventh year until they got and restarted in the eighth year. Well, then on the year of Jubilee, you know, seven times seven is 49. So that 49th year, the fields would sit. And then the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, they'd sit. But that was the time, without getting all into it, where everyone was released. They were released from their debts. There was, it was the year of Jubilee. It was a jubilation when everybody was released from their debts and their financial obligations. Land went back to families, and basically it was the way that Israel was set up so you would never end up in these generations and generations of poverty. So Jesus is saying, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's why he sent me. Now, in verse 20, it says, then uh, he was handed the scroll, and he unrolled it, and he spoke, and then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, another just a little aside, uh, my friend Janine is on the, uh, the NIV translation committee, and these people get together uh, several times a year, year in and year out, and they're trying to keep the scriptures current with the language. So the Bible's solid, it never changes, but the language is always changing. You know, language is fluid and it moves and some words get thrown out, other words get brought in. And so the translation committee is always working, always working, making changes, tweaks, making sure that the Bible is being spoken in the language of the people. And then after they've got a whole bunch of these uh, uh, tweaks and changes together, they issue another revision. And so the NIV was revised in 2011, not before that since 1984, So if you have an older NIV, before 2011, it would read a little bit different than mine, which is since 2011. Today, if you buy an NIV, it's the 2011. They don't do the 84s. But the reason they do this is because they go through and they say, how is the truth of God's Word as given in the original language, how is it best expressed in our language today? So this word is really interesting. I have it in in blue on, on the screen there. Everyone in the synagogue the eyes of them were fastened on him. So he sits down after he says, this is about me. This is about me. He rolls it up, he hands it over, and then he sits down and everybody's just staring at him. The, the original word is to, to stretch or extend. Their eyes were like, you know in the cartoons when they see that apple pie and it's steaming on the windowsill and their eyes bug out of their head? 
Well, they're looking at Jesus and their eyes are just bugged out of their head. Instead of saying bugged out of their head, the translators decided to use the word fastened. Gazing intently, looking intently. They're looking at Jesus. What are you going to say about what you just read? So they're paying attention. And with that attention, he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That phrase could be one of the hinges of the whole New Testament. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You ever go on a vacation, like to Hawaii or some other eighth wonder of the world, and you go there and you take pictures, and maybe you take some video with our, you know, our new fancy phones that can do that, and then we come back, and then we get family or friends together, and we show them what we have, and as we're showing them, we're realizing this does not do my experience any justice. You know, we saw the vistas with our own eyes. This doesn't do it any justice. And we're thinking, no, this, preaching is like that sometimes. When you're, you spend time in a passage, you spend time, you spend time hearing from others through, through books and commentaries. And, and this week I sat with the other pastors in my office and we talked about this passage, just picking each other's brains and, and trying to spread it out and say, you know, what is this? What does this mean? This is a beautiful passage. Jesus tells them it's his hometown crowd. He shows up. He's at the synagogue and he reads this thing and he tells them, you guys, it'd be like me, you know, saying or to you or Bo or or Jason, or John come up and saying, I'm the Messiah. I mean, if it were true, wouldn't it be awesome? I mean, if it were true, it's not true. But if it were true, it would be, and for Jesus, it was true. And he said, today, today, as I was reading this, this scripture is being fulfilled right in your hearing. You're hearing it. You're hearing the Old Testament being fulfilled, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Words of grace coming from. So he's proclaiming the good news. And it says that the people were amazed at the gracious words and they spoke well of him. If they were saying stuff like, hey, isn't isn't this one of our own hometown boys? Isn't this Joseph's son? When you share truth with people, particularly the good news. It's good news. It's not like, well, you know, you got to preach the truth. You got to give it to them hard and tell it like it is. That's an aberration of proclaiming good news. That's like this 20th century um, distortion of what good news is. Because good news is really, it's good news. It's good news. It's release from sins. It's release. Uh, It's forgiveness. It's God taking all that you ever did and saying, it's gone. I release you from it. It's gone. And as we're going to share communion together, Jesus' work on the cross doesn't just cover over our sins like the Old Testament sacrifices. takes our sins away. He takes our sins away. They're gone. And not only that, but the good news means that he, he covers us in his righteousness. We literally have the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering us. We are righteous. That's good news. When I say we are righteous, there's a part of me that wants to, 
it wants to qualify it. Yeah, but I'm still a sinner. But I'm not like righteous like God. And God, I believe God says through his word over and over and over, will you just accept my love? Will you just accept my cleansing? And Jesus, will you just accept my sacrifice? That's why it says love your neighbor as yourself. And the only way we love ourselves is to receive the love that God has for us and to believe that we could possibly be that worthy to actually be loved by God. And when we receive that love, only then can we really love our neighbor as we love ourselves, as we love the way God has designed and created us. So they were speaking well of him. And then the passage just takes this wild 180, apparently, Overtly, it seems like it's taking this 180, and it begins to go in this different direction. But as you spend time in the passage, and you look at the context, and and you really spend time in it, you realize that, no, Jesus is just speaking, and he's not not unlike any of the other prophets of Israel. And he once told the religious leaders, was there a prophet that you didn't persecute? your, Your forefathers killed and stoned the prophets, some of them right here in Jerusalem, some of them right here at the temple. And was there a prophet that, that, ever a prophet that you didn't somehow persecute and rail against? And Jesus wouldn't be the same as all the others. He would come and he would give truth and he would be stoned, he would be killed, he would be beaten. So it says... Jesus said to them in verse 23, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Now, this slide and the next are from 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5. He's bringing up some examples, some examples that would just continue to be true in his day. There were many widows, he says, in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land, but Elijah was not sent to any of the widows in Israel. He wasn't sent to any of them. Instead, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, which was the northwest corner across the border outside of Israel, to a Gentile, to an unbeliever, to a dog. He was sent to this widow. Why? Because the good news was always, always, always meant for the whole world. The good news was always meant for everyone, not just for a certain bloodline. So he goes on in verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy. Skin disease. They were, remember, unclean, unclean. They had to be in separate places and little groups outside the main part of of the towns and the cities. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian, which I really love because I'm half Syrian and I had an uncle Naaman who was all Syrian and I bet he looked just like this Naaman because he looked really, really, really Middle Eastern. And they didn't like this. 
Not, not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was a military leader of the enemy. He was on the other side. He was a military leader, and worse yet, he had leprosy. He was already bad, but then he was like oozing bad. He was yucky. And with all the people in Israel that had leprosy, Elisha was sent to Naaman. And actually, Naaman was sent to Elisha and was told what to do and was just such a non-Jew that he wasn't going to do it. But he was kind of talked into it. And when he did it, he was healed. Jesus is, is saying, with the references to Elijah um, and the widow and Elisha and Naaman the Syrian, Jesus is underscoring that good news to the poor embraces the widow, embraces the unclean, the Gentile, the foreigner, the other, those of the lowest status. They knew, they knew what Jesus was saying, that he, him coming as the Messiah meant deliverance and good news to the whole world, not just to them, not just to the Jews. And they wanted them him to themselves. They wanted him. So all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard it. They weren't just mad. The translators, right? They know the words. They were furious. How dare you do this? You come into our synagogue and you unroll our holy writing and you read it and you say this to us? You say to us that, that, that we're not going to accept the Messiah when he comes? You're no Messiah. You're not him. They, they were spitting mad. They were furious. So much so. Now imagine that you're Jesus. They got up. They drove him out of the town. And it wasn't in their Jeep Cherokee, right? That's how they drove him out. Can you imagine if you're, they drove him out? Were they, was it like a, a melee? You know, was it like the, the demonstrations in the streets today? Probably. Where they just come on, and they just they they manhandled handled him out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill. Now, I've got a, a video here. Go ahead and run that video. This is Nazareth as it looks today, and you can see it's very hilly. It's very hilly. Now, I don't know which part of it was the brow of the hill, but you look around, even from the sky, as you look around, you can see there's a lot of hills. And it's a lot more populated than it was back then. But they took him, they hustled him through this area, and they took him up on a hill. Now, this didn't take, like, you know, three minutes. This probably took, I don't know, 20, 30, 60, 90 minutes. But they got him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. So they were, like, really nice to him when he was in there uh, saying gracious words to them. But once they understood what Jesus was really saying, their minds couldn't comprehend that. Why? Because they had parameters through which they would view the Messiah. And when the Messiah came and he was over here, they said, no, you're not the Messiah because we're expecting, we're expecting this. Jesus, you don't fit in to our understanding of the Messiah. And what's their understanding? It's what they'd learned. It's what they knew. It's what the people around them thought. It's what they'd always thought. 
and they had this closed mentality, and Jesus didn't fit. So they took him out, and they were going to throw him off the cliff, but in verse 30, Luke just says it. Doesn't give us any description. Thanks, Luke. Right? It could just give a little 3D here. He says, he, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That's all I'm going to tell you. He just, he just went on his way. So, I mean, what would you do? How would you do it? Would you grab somebody's, like, cloak and put it over you and, like, kind of... I mean, he was the focus of their venom, but somehow he had a mission. He had a responsibility. He wasn't Houdini, but he just went on his way. So this passage, the focal point of it is that the Messiah would come, he would preach good news to the poor. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself because I've got the what's it say up on the screen. So let me just, let me just read it. I can read it because I wrote it. So it's still my own words, all right? So Jesus operated and ministered in the power of the Spirit. He declared that he is the one about whom the prophet spoke. He came to proclaim good news to the poor. And the poor are any outside of the social status of the Jews. The poor always involves others, somebody different than you. Um, The elders got together yesterday and we did some assessments. And we were talking about how we're wired and some light bulbs came on with us, you know, and we're looking around, oh, that's why you do that. Oh, that's why you, you say those things. That's why you understand things like that. And one of the things I said, you know, I'm always using humor. I'm sorry, I just do. But one of the things I said was, I always just thought people that were different from me were just weird. I just always thought they were just weird. Now, I've known this a little longer than since yesterday. But um, the poor... Are, are part of what they represent the other. Anybody different than us that we're just like, well, they're weird. They're different. People not like the Israelites, foreigners, low social status folk, social outcasts. The people were furious that they needed to include the other. They wanted their king for themselves and they rejected him. I mean, imagine if you came in and there were all these people here in the chairs that you didn't know that were actually the people out in your real life you stayed away from. You, you put division between you and them because you weren't in that group. You're not part of that culture. You're not in that society of people. So in your real life, you know, you're better than them. And then you come in and they're all in here. You're like, you might not say it, but you're thinking, what, what, what are they doing in here? They, they don't belong here. Because they're the other. Those closest to Jesus, the Jews, did not accept him. They missed the Messiah. That's the first what's it mean slide. Those closest to Jesus, they missed him. Jesus came for the poor, the outcast, and those farthest from God. His kingdom would be an upside-down kingdom, people call it. That comes from that... uh, in, in, in the middle of Acts, when it's talking about the work in Thessalonica, it says that the disciples or the apostles went in and, and they just, the whole town was turned upside down with their teaching. That's what the kingdom of God is, though. So listen, even though we're all Christians, the odds are that when the truth of the Scripture gets into us, that our first reaction is, oh, I don't have to do that. It's optional. 
My poor mother, she's got a, she needs help in her home. So me and my sisters were working on this thing. And she tells us, well, just because the doctor tells me I have to do this doesn't mean I have to. Just because he says it doesn't mean I have to do it. It's my house. Help me not to be like that when I get to be her age. <laughs> my poor kids. Um, I love my mother. She's wonderful. It's the, it's the dementia. You know, it's the dementia. And it's causing her to be different than she was before. But just, do we have spiritual dementia sometimes? Well, just because the Bible seems to indicate this, and I don't mean just like surface, you know, the Bible says, you know, thou shalt or thou shalt not. But I mean, when, when it gets to the heart of, hey, Jesus came from heaven to earth to deal with the likes of us. This guy forgave his servant all this huge debt. And then the servant goes out, and he just has this little debt. You know the story, but he doesn't forgive it. And the master is very angry with this servant because he didn't do to that person what the master did to him. God sends his son Jesus right? Jesus comes down to be with us, and he expects us, he expects us to, in our lives, in our living, in our relationships, in our service, in our our very lives, to proclaim good news to the poor. It's really not optional, because there's a kingdom, and there's a king, and the king rules, and the subjects obey the king, or they get, you know, whatever's coming to them. But somehow we just think it's like optional. I'm the same way. We, we read it and we think, well, I still don't really like to be around that. Listen, listen, you guys, this is the very thing. When we're saying to ourselves, we don't really like to be around that kind of person. That's the kernel. That's the heart of sin. It's the heart of self. It's the heart of putting us on the throne saying, oh, I don't really want to be around that person. That's when we got to lean into that and say, yeah, but God loves that person. It's not, that person's not too dirty for God. They're not too sinful for God. They're not too uneducated for God. They're not too other side of society for God. That's when we've got to lean in. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's keep going. Um, the Jews missed the Messiah. We can't miss Jesus by missing the poor. The other, because the Jews did, we can't. The kingdom of God is without borders. What does it mean? It means the kingdom is without borders. There are no borders in the kingdom of God. We must include those that society casts off. The church in Newton can't be like the people of Nazareth who, with all their religion, miss Jesus. How does it affect me? The poor may be poor economically, spiritually, status-wise, educationally, or otherwise socially. The poor are all of those. And if I am a Jesus follower... I will move toward proclaiming good news to the poor because Jesus did. And now in our common vernacular, we say, uh, period, full stop. It's supposed to mean something, like, you know, emphatic. But if Jesus did it, then we're supposed to do it. So what's the bottom line? Following Jesus means we believe stuff, and then we act on it. If you don't act on it, you don't believe it. You can't just believe it and not act on it, because that means you don't believe it. James teaches us that. Belief that that affects action. No action, no faith, James. Just like no love, no Jesus, the apostle John said. So Julie, over time, acted. 
She acted. She started a business. She took on headaches and struggles for years with this business. She taught the Haitian women to make jewelry. She figured out a way to sell it in America. She provided jobs. She provided a living. She provided hope. She provided Jesus. And I asked her, I said, what, what is your, what's your vision for this? What are you trying to accomplish in what you're doing with your business? This is a short answer. Go ahead and listen to it. I believe God is starting a movement of, of connectivity in his kingdom. And I'm excited to be a part of that. I have dreams of employing so many more families and equipping so many more families. Dreams of giving them good shelter, food, and water as a jumping off point, but having a great place to work and a place to learn about Jesus Christ in their everyday work. I feel like God just shows up most in our everyday, mundane day-to-day work. And that's the greatest place to share where he is at work. I also want to just give a lot of um, opportunity to people here in the United States, both the women that work here in our home office. We have women who come to us from transitional housing situations who have been really beat up by the world, who are in tough places and need jobs with good grace and maybe need to learn some job skills. But what I've seen God do in their lives is he shifted their mindset from that of a victim to the mindset of someone who is helping somebody else. How powerful is that? That is amazing. And I would love to see that happen for a lot more people. So she never imagined when she went to Haiti that she would come back and she would actually start this business. She was not a business person. She was a band director for a high school for 30 years. And she retired. And she, when she went to Haiti, she came back. And her husband had some means. And she said to him, you are going to help me start a business. And it was tough. It was hard. It still is hard. Really hard. I mean, it was, some of you will understand this. They got so far into it that they were screaming like, we can't do this. But they were so far into it that they couldn't back out of it. They were trapped in doing good. They were trapped in doing good. And they couldn't stop if they wanted to. That's how hard it was. So, but they did it. They did it. And, uh, I I respect them a lot for what they did. So the question I have for us is today, how are you and I as Christ followers, as followers of King Jesus, how are you and I involved in proclaiming good news to the poor? And I don't mean door-to-door like getting in people's face. No, no, in relationship and serving others and and our lives and our everyday lived lives. How are we involved in what became the primary mission of Jesus, proclaiming the good news to those who were on the outside? And then my question is, how are we as a corporate body, as a church family, doing that? We saw this morning that it, it basically if you give to the Great Commission Fund, the Alliance is doing stuff. They're going to the the lowest of the low, the hardest of the hard places in the world, and they're proclaiming good news. They're setting some prisoners literally free. That's a part of a a denomination we're in. So as we share communion, I'm going to ask those who are going to serve if they would come up. 
what we're going to do is, is we're going to go through and we're going to serve the, the bread and the juice, and you can come up. Uh, we're going to do that one right after the other, and then after we've all got it, then we'll take them both at the same time together. Um, what we are celebrating this morning is, the what, is what Jesus did to set the captives free. When he read that, it hadn't been done yet. It was about to get done, but it hadn't been done yet. And so he said, do this in remembrance of me. We want to remember what Jesus did on the cross, that he was tortured, that he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again. And somewhere in there, he offered his blood on the mercy seat that was not made with human hands in heaven and offered it as an atonement for our sins. Let's pray together, and then we'll receive both of the elements, and then we'll take them together. Father, we thank you for what Jesus did to set the captives free, to set us free, to set us free, God. We're the captives. We're the people of Nazareth, and we're at the same time the poor. We're the ones who need Jesus. Lord, would you give us, would you give us the heart for the people that don't have them yet. God, as we take this bread and this juice, we remember what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. We remember the suffering. We remember the blood that takes our sins away. We say thank you, Jesus. We say thank you. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus.